Cadre Cigarettes, that smooth, mild flavor that helps you do the people's business, be a patriot with every puff, and enjoy Cadre Cigarettes, sponsors of the committee program. Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program with Aron Chaudhary, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. We join the show already in progress. And now, Cross Atlantic, Cross Talk. Hi, and welcome to the committee program. And this is Cross Atlantic Crosstalk with the gang, Ellie Mayo Hagen, director of the Class Think Tank and friend of the program, and our own deputy director, Julia Doubleday, who is up for what her is an ungodly hour. And what we've done is when we said what time it was, we put we put no comma between 9.30. So you thought it was 3.30 p.m. So you're upset to be here is what I'm just trying to say. Yeah, I thought we were going on the air at 3.30 p.m. It is 9.44 a.m. And here in West Berlin, it is, in fact, 3.30 p.m. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But anyway, really, really glad to see you both. And it is strange and horrible times that we find ourselves in. And really strange and horrible times to sort of be on the left. You know, as sort of jingoistic things fracture through the culture, I think you probably all have, have felt it it becomes sort of hard to take that tenable anti-war position that I think many of us find to be our comfortable space to exist in in less perilous times. I mean, uh, uh, how are things in the UK, Ellie, specifically? I know a little more about what's, what's going on in the US, but how are people framing the conflict and how is that affecting the kind of politics around it? So I think um, Britain is laboring under the delusion that we won the Second World War single-handedly. That is um, something that has really influenced a lot of elements of our politics. I mean, ironically, it was kind of Russia that won the Second World War, but like, you know, that's A lot of Russian kids died, yeah. Yeah, that's something that we sort of don't acknowledge at all in the country. Um, And it has led to this sort of very chest-beating, sort of jingoistic mood that takes over whenever the war is on the horizon and I and that has really reached a fever pitch in Britain and and so I I would divide people broadly into three categories the left who are generally pretty worried about the situation and don't and want um, to kind of negotiate out of it Um, and also to sort of uh, hit the oligarchs with sanctions and disa- and also move away from fossil fuels and disable pu- Putin that way. Um, the government the, and the right, who actually are quite being quite sober about the whole thing and are sort of say, urging caution and saying, you know, um, we don't want to risk anything that might have terrible consequences. And it's actually the sort of liberal centre that is being incredibly gung-ho and mm-hmm. is like... Same here. ...sort of advocating for, you know, action that they know will result in a possible nuclear conflict and the end of human civilization. And um, whenever there's any objection to that, people who are objected sort of described as appeasers or a sort of... Sort of you know, challenge, or what do you want to do? Do you want to sort of sit by and watch, like, all of these people in Ukraine die, which obviously disguises the fact that, like, 
people in Ukraine and many more people in Europe and around the world would die if this conflict were to escalate. You know, so it, it's... Um, I've said it on the show before, like, and I just said it to you before we started a run, that um, I think, like, American public discourse has much more of a sort of freewheeling kind of First Amendment quality to it, which has, like, upsides that, that maybe you don't appreciate because you've got rubbish leaders. Um, but I can see yeah. them. Um, I feel like it's permissible to say a lot of stuff in America. And the downside of that is you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene is like elected to public office, right? <laughs> Whereas we don't yeah, have that's a downside. Marjorie Taylor. Yeah, like we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have people like her in public office. But what we do have is a group of about 20 people who all went to the same school who now run the country and they get to decide what the boundaries, the yeah, of like what is and isn't acceptable to say. And like, you are sort of cast out if you if you violate any of that. So at the moment, the only um, the only sort of permissible opinions are NATO, like impe unimpeachable, and Russia. And I'm and I want to be clear that I mean Russia and not Putin. Russia bad. And the reason that I say Russia and not Putin is there's been some sort of bizarre things like. Um, Russian artists being deplatformed, regardless yeah. of their opinions on Putin, which I think is disgraceful because quite a lot of Russians are very anti-Putin. I don't think it's fair to punish them for who the, their nation's leader is. And also there was some debate today about the Manchester Mill and the fact that it has a statue of Engels. Manchester Mill is a newspaper that was set up by, isn't it Engels' his father? And um, mm -hmm. it has a statue of Engels outside the the, the front of the headquarters and there's some sort of debate about should that stay up, which is obviously ridiculous because if Engels was still alive, he would certainly be on the side of Ukraine and not Putin. And it's got nothing to do with anything. It's like, how hey, you dragging Engels into this? No, they dragged yeah, Tolstoy yeah, exactly. into it. They dragged Tolstoy into it. Some He's places were Russian. banning war and peace. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Long dead before any of this happened. I mean, I, I, will, I will let make not make you have to, like, uh, you know, get into where the taboos are. I do know that one of them is something – look, in America, there is a portion of the left that has openly spoken about um, this conflict brewing because of the militaristic tendencies of NATO, etc. I mean, Julia, how do you think – you know, how are the fractures – because it's still pretty ugly over on our side. How, how are those fracturing out in that different way where, the, where we do have the more freewheeling debate? Well – one, I think that that hasn't always been the case in the U.S. Like, we, we as much as we p pretend we don't have this strict class system, I think, like, 90% of our presidents went to an Ivy League college. You know, like, we, for the most part, also have a small group of elites that went to a small group of schools that are running things. I think it's really been in the last, like, five or six years that we've had this um, really major shift, and part of that was definitely Trump. Um and that, I think, also gets at the heart of, like, what was appealing about Trump to voters is that, like, he didn't, he wasn't this, even though he did go to an Ivy League school, he presented himself as that he was, um, you know, a normal guy who just was rich because he's smart and can do whatever he wants and say whatever he wants. And there was that backlash where the media was like, oh, well, he can't say this and kind of try to get rid of him a bunch of times. But it was already too late at that point. I mean, they had already given him so much free airtime. Um, I think, like, what Labor has been doing with the purges is sort of like the other route that the Democratic Party could have gone, and they chose not to do that. And we're seeing the results of 
them not purging their party, which is that their party is not completely like dead in the water yet. Um, but they also have like an increasing number of challengers and progressives in their ranks. Um, but to take it back to um, the internal debate that's happening on the left, I do think there's an element of the left in the U.S. that's... Um, what's the word when you just want to disagree with everything everyone somebody contrarian. says? Contrarian. It, they're just sort of like contrarian. No, I'm just kidding. See, I did the contrarian thing. Yeah, they're contrarian to the degree that they can't even like latch on to what they're talking about anymore. It seems like it's like anything that has to do with the U.S. is the fault of the U.S. Um, the U.S. is bad and just these like very broad, broad sense. Um, now contrast that with sort of like the media narrative, which is like the U.S. and NATO are unimpeachable. They have nothing to do with this. And also we're going to make tons of false claims, like hundreds a second about how the Russians are the first to do this, that, and the other, the first to ever invade somebody, the first to ever lie about something, the first to ever um, violate country's sovereignty. So I think both sides are sort of at fault in the sense that like you see a lot of complaints that the left, you know, is like, quote unquote, like defending um, war crimes and this horrible invasion. And I think the vast majority of people on the left are not. Um, but at the same time, when you have people putting forth claims that aren't true and bringing the U.S. into it by saying Russia is the only country to do this, specifically the word only, specifically the first, specifically mm -hmm. things that are untrue and are lies, that's when leftists jump in and say, like, that's not true. Um, and that's important to do. So, I mean, that's that's certainly not the fault of people on the left um, if other people are going to make false statements you know just don't no, say those I, things <laughs> i will say this sort of, it, this conversation becomes even more interesting when and, and we've had this conversation like i am in a lot of uh you know like twitter chat rooms and stuff with folks who aren't necessarily in the imperial core especially folks uh from india and pakistan uh who i chat with about po politics a lot and their view on this the sort of they have you know, a similar opinion to some of the contrarian left, except that they've sort of come by it much more honestly, right? Which is just like when they hear the word imperialism spoken by the U.S., it's triggering, right? It's like, it's like no, like, you know, the U.K. and the U.S. does not get to say what imperialism is because y'all are the empire builders, etc. cetera. Uh, and this word specifically has been this sort of fracture line where it's like, is it possible for a regional bourgeois power like, you know, uh, Russia to commit imperialism against a global imperial power like the United States. And I guess I, I find that the, the, the discourse around that slightly tiresome, but I also do understand it, right? It is just sort of this, you all don't get to own this thing. And, and, and they've come by this maybe contrarian opinion, honestly, is how I would say it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I agree with that from what I've seen, like on Twitter, I've seen a lot of like leftists worldwide being very reactive to, um, what the U.S. is sort of shaping the narrative as, um, you know, that being said, I think it's a mistake to ally with Putin or to think that he's going to do anything good for the global working class or to think that he wants to do anything, um, positive in the world. It seems like my own personal opinion is that it seems like he's like gone totally nuts. He wants to build an empire. I'm not sure that it's going to stop with Ukraine, especially if he's, um, not confronted. That being said, I also do not want to start a nuclear world war. So I think we're all sort of in this weird space where it's like, 
we know what happens when people like Putin are sort of given free reign to continue to do whatever they want to do. Mm. At the same time, he has his finger on the button. So I think ultimately what it comes down to is just this argument for no nuclear weapons, please, because you're creating an environment where accountability is just totally impossible. I mean, we've also had crazy presidents like President Trump that there there was no way to hold this man accountable because he is holding the power to destroy the world several times over. I mean, a lot of people have been saying, well, Putin wouldn't do that, you know, because that's that's suicidal. And it's like, I mean, he's a megalomaniac. What, what would Hitler do in a bunker if he it's, was in that bunker and he had the ability to end all life on Earth instead of just killing himself? What do you think sociopathic megalomaniacs, narcissists with, I don't know, every other disorder in the we book. We do not do Hitler fan fiction on the show. That is in your contract, actually. If you read carefully in there, it says that you we don't do that. You think it's fan fiction to say, I think that Hitler would rather have destroyed <laughs> no, no, life to, on we don't, we don't like to imagine, we don't like to imagine, uh, you know, we don't like to use history, Hitler as the, imagine, as the imaginary uh, example. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm making a Hitler joke in here somehow, and a contract. Great, great. Yeah, thing. we love those. Um, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just think that if Putin is cornered, um, I don't really know what reason he has to not try and take everyone out. We just have too many cold warriors on either side, right? People who sort of want and understand the kind of destructive confrontation. It makes me so sad, Ellie, when I'm thinking about it, that somebody like Jeremy Corbyn is not in charge of the Labour Party exactly at a moment like this because the kind of Cold War skeptics, that generation of folks who've kind of also dealt with this, as Julie's saying, like, you know, nuclear disarmament issue and some of these really underlying fundamental human existential issues just aren't the loud voices in the party. Yeah, I mean, I don't really like, I don't uh, do Jeremy Corbyn nostalgia. I think it's a sickness that the left needs to get over because like that is that is gone now that's done and i think we need to think about the future and not the past um but yes i mean the general point of you know like when i was a kid um i I was born in the 80s i was born the year after chernobyl and and i was born in wales and um wales there was like a big cloud of like radiation that like sort of went over Wales from Chernobyl and um, and it ended up um, like creating a situation where you couldn't eat meat that was grown in my area for like 10 years because of the radiation. Um, mm. And so Yikes. when I was a kid, like nu- nuclear power and nuclear weapons were, were big. Like, you know, you learned about them in school and what they were capable of. And I remember like when Jack Chirac commissioned loads of nuclear tests off the coast of New Zealand, my whole class uh, wrote uh, letters to him telling him how terrible it was um, to be doing that and that he needed to stop. Like, we were all, like, 10 years old, and our teacher got us all together and got us to do it. And I just think that, like, over the years in this country, the sort of nuclear nuclear weapons have become something that you've you're expected as a leader to just accept in order to sort of move the territory onto bread and butter issues that affect people's everyday lives. And that's why even Jeremy Corbyn agreed to keep Trident, like um, Britain's nuclear deterrent, Mm. even though it's like, that is something that he's devoted his whole life to campaigning against was Trident. Um, Because 
such is the level of consensus about like I wouldn't say that the serious people believe a set of beliefs around how this kind of thing is supposed to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I and I mean, God knows what will happen um, with this situation now. But I'm I'm really hoping that like if we make it through it in one piece, it will force people to think about the reality of having nuclear weapons. Because as Julia said, like, you know, now like a crazy, increasingly isolated dictator who's surrounded by yes men has got like the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. And, and that's like, an ins it's insane that we've like ended up in that position, you know? So yeah, I hope that at least that is something that comes out of this. I think something that will come out of this also though, uh, which unfortunately probably does not help nuclear um, non-proliferation would be the kind of story that's happened, which is every country that's been asked by, uh, especially the West, to give up its nuclear weapons uh, has found itself in trouble, You know, whether that be Libya, for certainly for different reasons than Ukraine. Uh, but there may be just a, it might be much harder for people to sort of have that conversation in a non-multipolar way, which is, of course, all the more reason to engage in true multipolarism in negotiations in the world. But I mean, I don't know. It seems hard. And it seems to me, Julie, that like uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris kind of, I mean, I don't know. I, I actually haven't watched all of Biden's response speeches. I just see the bits. I know that they, they, put, they give him the good drugs before they send him out there. Um, but it seems to be falling into sort of just really familiar kind of State Department habits. They seem to be just sort of doing the Cold War stuff that they're comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I've been pleasantly, honestly pleasantly surprised that there hasn't been talk of a direct confrontation at this point. Um, I've been concerned about a direct confrontation between Russia and the U.S. for the last, like, six years. I also think that's one of the reasons that the left uh, essentially sort of came under fire in the wake of this invasion is that a lot of people on the left were focused on U.S. anti-imperialism right ahead of the invasion. Um, I feel like for myself, I you know, wasn't really publicly talking about it because I didn't feel that confident about anything, but um, privately did not think that the that Russia would invade. I didn't I didn't think they would bomb Kiev. I didn't think it would be this like full on invasion because it just seems so not strategic. It seemed like something that um, U.S. intelligence was just sort of telling us. And I think that's sort of a boy who cried wolf situation that the left can't be blamed for. I mean, they've lied to us continuously. So, no, I don't usually believe things they say. In this case, it was true. Um, and I think the left had to do this sort of like hard pivot to being like, oh, okay, well, if this is actually happening, no, of course we're not for this. Um, and then there are people, you know, around that you've mentioned before, there are people who do seem to be what they call the like so-called pro-Putin left, but I think it's like very overblown. I think it's particularly concentrated among um, a few very online people who um, essentially this is their entire brand and they either, you know, out of protection of that brand, out of cognitive dissonance, like need to keep doubling down on whatever they had said previously. Um, but for the most part, I haven't seen any sort of like full-throated defenses of Putin. I think to a great degree, that's overblown. And I mean, I guess is what's uh, leading towards uh, isolation uh, as, as you're both describing it. I guess the other thing that, that, that I would wonder sort of coming out of this is 
what I mean, what are the constructive ways for a progressive left to engage, right? To it, to initiate a peace movement. Um, is it concentrating on the kind of mechanics of NATO? What this means is a thing. I mean, how does one how does one present something that is a, a fair solution when both sides are just sort of looking to save face, right? It is a communications war, almost as much as it is anything at this point. I don't know. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go on. <laughs> I said I don't know, so why don't you start? <laughs> we we had an anti-war movement in Britain uh, for Iraq, which, like, I was sort of part, I was a teenager. I was part of it as a teenager. But we like we sort of came together. We had huge demonstrations, and you know, I remember my mum took me to all these like little demonstrations in our little town, and we did lots of things and. Um, and then it sort of, it, it kind of, the, the sort of mass movement element, element of it kind of dissipated. Um, and I think that, that was, uh, there was, that had a very sort of strong undercurrent, the Iraq war, anti-war movement um, of being opposed to American imperialism. And that, that was the sort of like ideological underpinning, I guess, of the, of the, uh, the movement, which is obviously, you know, makes sense. Um, but I think now what we need is a sort of renewed anti-war movement that is not, at, well, that's um, the underpinning of which is just anti-imperialism, like regardless of where it's coming from, because, you know, otherwise that does lead us into this sort of strange place of anyone who isn't an American imperialist is my friend kind of thing, which is very Great. morally bankrupt. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think what what we need to do now is to like Owen Jones wrote this in the Guardian is to like come together and create a, a sort of renewed anti-war movement. Um, easier said than done. Easier so, yeah. said than done. I think yeah. there needs to be communication between regular people in all these countries. I mean, I've been saying for a while like um, yeah. these borders don't exist for rich people. They don't exist for governments. They just exist for us. Um, they impede us. They make it impossible for us to communicate um they make it impossible for us to adequately organize against a power structure that is multinational that is uh global that an economic system that is global that is administered often through these international bodies um in the meantime you know we just we have no connection to anybody you know outside of our own you know national discourse um and I think that needs to change. But I do, you know, of course, we're living in this world that they built that has so many legal, um, national and international legal boundaries to how you communicate and how you organize. Um, but, you know, I saw this woman, this Ukrainian woman had posted a piece about um, how frustrating it is to see the American left so focused on American anti-imperialism, even at this time. And the example she used was... I agreed with some of the stuff she was talking about, and she did talk for global or talk about advocating for global movements. Um, but she also said something about how, what if in 2003, she gave this like hypothetical in 2003 when the U.S. was invading Iraq, what if Rus the Russian left was only focused on Russian imperialism and hadn't been advocating against the Iraq War? Um, 
And I actually felt that was a good case study from my own point of view because she seemed to be advocating for Russia to engage with the Americans and to escalate the conflict. And personally, I think that's a great example of how that wouldn't have helped. Like, it wouldn't have helped that situation, the invasion in Iraq, to have Russia also come into Iraq uh, threatening to nuke Americans. I think that that would have really escalated the conflict. I don't think it would have saved a lot of lives in the Middle East. It could have potentially led to nuclear conflict 15 years ago. I mean, I don't I don't really understand the argument that um, the escalation is going to save lives unless you can make that case for how it's going to do that um, without without causing more war, more violence, more death. Um, so, you know, I just think that we're in a really hard situation and for people on the left obviously our underlying goal is anti-imperialism and anti-war and for the russian left in 2003 i think the best thing they could do would be to continue to draw focus onto the crimes of their own government and i think in this case that also is a productive thing that um americans can do because the reality is we're not we don't exist in a vacuum we're living in a heavily heavily propagated propagandized nation where people are getting plenty of important information about what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Um, we're getting that wall to wall. So the idea that every single leftist has to go around repeating the propaganda from morning to night and there's no time to talk about anything else, of course, it's just part of this ideological project um, to get everybody saying the same thing at the same time um, and to pardon yourself in the process, whitewash yourself in the process. You know, we've seen a lot of prominent people in the U.S., including like one guy went very viral because he's a congressional advisor and he tweeted that there had never been, he was racking his brains and he could think of no people who had ever resisted an occupier like Ukraine was doing, which is of course erasure of like thousands and thousands of movements all over the world for, um, you know, against occupation and against colonialism. Uh, and he still hasn't taken it down, I don't think, even though he went very, very viral for that kind of claim. But so that's the kind of thing that we have to call out because all of these struggles are interconnected. Um, it doesn't make sense for us to oppose what Putin's doing and then continue to deny our own role in the bombing that's happening in Yemen we have to acknowledge that and we have to also put an end to that. And we have much more power over that situation in Yemen. So, of course, that's why it doesn't get talked about. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. These connections don't seem to get made in the discourse. And because we're able to sort of flood the field, we don't actually have time to look at that big picture. Uh, but thank you both for helping us do so. Ellie Mayo Hagen in the UK with the class think tank. And Julia, why don't you tell us uh, what you're starting to, to do consulting? Can you tell us exactly what you're going to be doing? Give a oh, little for yourself. Um, sure. Yeah, I've been working uh, a little bit with Matriarch, which is Nomiki's organization. And then I've been also doing some uh, deep coaching for campaigns. So essentially just helping them um, ensure that they're structured properly. A big thing I focus on is uh, how the 
how the campaigns are organized, how the different departments are organized, how they communicate with each other, their staffing. Um, I have experience on the data side, field side, comp side. I've run a campaign. So um, essentially making sure all those departments are functioning and also functioning with each other. So that's the kind of stuff I've been doing in the last couple months. And uh, we will hear more about it. And we will see you in the next segment where we get into the highbrow, lowbrow stuff. Uh, so everyone stick around. Thank you so much. First is history, then a sophistication. Cadre Cigarettes, that smooth, bold flavor that helps you do the people's business. Enjoy Cadre Cigarettes, sponsors of the committee program and welcome to your alternate week content where we try to focus on culture and this week we are back to looking at the cinema with the show's deputy director julia doubleday hello julia hi how's it going it's going good the show's been going good people have been wondering where you are and i tell them that you agreed to be on the four cross atlantic crosstalks and you even Mm -hmm. have accepted all of those and that anything else has to be quote unquote, your idea. And this segment that we're going to do today is your idea. Yeah. Oh, and you just, you just hinted at the idea with your expression. Why don't you tell the kids? Unconsciously. Okay. So Ron and I have very different tastes in movies. He went to film school, so he likes really um, slow, boring, plotting movies that um, make you feel important and sophisticated when you watch them. And I like movies that are actually entertaining. So we decided to uh, do a show called Highbrow, Lowbrow, which um, in which I force him to watch a terrible movie. He forces me to watch a good movie. Um, and then we talk about film together as two experts. And I will say what would help me, and uh, if we can get a graphic that's called, like, IT help and has the, our phone number on it, it would be great. If someone can explain to me why on Dropbox, when I say I want to be able to watch this offline, I can't watch it when I'm offline, that would be amazing, because this would really help the highbrow, lowbrow process. I was in the middle of the film when all of a sudden we were at a certain altitude on a flight that I was on, and I had to complete it in a different sitting, and I don't know if that were to alter my experience of said film. I don't think so. Even just watching it on a plane is messed up. I mean, I would never have watched The Last Emperor on a plane. It's an insult. So the two films in question are for Highbrow, 1987, Bernardo Bertolucci, uh, you know, famed Italian left-wing filmmaker, made The Conformist, uh, several other movies. Uh, This is The Last Emperor. I think it was either nominated or won very many Academy Awards, uh, which is usually not a sign of a good film. Uh, uh, But unusually anyway no i won't say anything more about it that's one of the films and the other film is i actually didn't catch the director of it but it is certainly a a john c Riley, judd apatow vehicle which is walk hard 2007 uh a comedic music biopic that sounds right right i think we're doing fine here directed by someone named jake kasdan 
I don't know who that is. It, it's almost as if they didn't think that that part of the movie was part that had to be done well. But we'll find out. So we'll find let's out. watch the trailer to The Last Emperor, and we will deal with our highs before we go to our lows. I have decided that you will be the new lord of 10,000 years. You will be the son of heaven. At the age of three, he ascended to the dragon throne. As a boy, he was the absolute ruler of imperial China. Stop! The emperor will walk. His life filled with sights and sounds no other human being on earth could experience. I think the emperor is the loneliest boy on earth. I want a modern wife, Johnston, who speaks English and French, and who can dance the quick step. As a man, he became its captive. I do not want to escape anymore. I want to rule. A victim of its violent history. I stop! I am accused of being a traitor, a collaborator, and a counter-revolutionary. It is not an accusation! A prisoner of his own power. Do you think a man can become emperor again? Yes. The Japanese. They are getting closer to him every day. He was Pu Yi, Lord of 10,000 years. 10,000 years! The last emperor. Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. It's funny how different decades have different, uh, uh, you know, trailer voiceover guys. This guy was totally one of the 80s guys, and it's sort of hard to see the appeal uh, in retrospect a bit, right? It's too sort of average American, but he sounds like the guy from the Reagan commercials even. It's like it's very 80s, like earnest it. voice. I like it's it a very earnest the, voice. I like it better than the 90s, like... Don, what's his name? Yeah. In a world. Yeah, in that guy. World. Yeah. It's very cheesy now in So retrospect. this was our the first choice. Obviously, you know, it's going to be easy... For me to pick something that you find instantly obnoxious, whatever. Why do you think The Last Emperor was the first kind of uh, foray for the hybrid? I think that's a good place to start. Um, it's very it, it's very political, historical. So I think you wanted to maybe pick something that had some kind of tie into the show. It wasn't just that's true. That's about, true about film. Although I, I mean, a lot of film is political like cinema i made it all is it's a culture industry right adorno was right yeah indeed so i'm saying nothing (laughs) as usual (laughs) okay my answer that's my answer oh Uh, no and also because you know you know uh, sometimes in the show we even watch these things that are like theoretical it's like these montages don't you get it this is like this is a very normal commercial feature film you know people go places do things there's you know an engaging plot music comes on the parts that you would think and it's sort of in that way and, and it's not incredibly long it's a, it seems like a very accessible movie it's sort of you Wait, can this see movie? it was pretty friggin long it was a, it was two and a half hours 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's average uh, now. Walk Hard was 212, so like... No, it wasn't. I think it's like an hour and a half. Is uh, no, it? You would think that because that's the amount of time that it's funny Hold for. I'm, I'm gonna You're right about it. that. You have that's almost tr- exactly that's correct. That's fair. That's a good burn. Uh, I know, but I used it too early. Yeah. Length of the film. It's actually two 159. Hours. I looked it up two before. Hours, yeah. Yeah. yeah, two hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what did you think of it? Very beautiful. Which is great. what people say when they don't like films, by the great way. You dresses. always say, you say, you say like, <laughs> I love the cinematography. Great it was dresses. fantastic. No, it was very, very beautiful. Um, I mean, I felt, first of all, I learned a lot. A lot of stuff that as a host of a leftist podcast, I probably should have known about. Um, but I, yeah, it was educational. So that's always something that I'm not looking for in my films. I felt smarter, more <laughs> informed after I watched it. And I actually feel like I'm too smart already. So when I watch movies, I want them to actually take the edge off, not sharpen kill the edge. Bra- kill brain cells. So it was very challenging for me to watch. I watched it with my housemate. I made her watch it as well. We made a lot of popcorn. She also felt very educated afterwards. She's kind of, she's kind of insufferable now, to be honest. You know, one of the, also the reasons that it reminds me of what you're saying that I thought it was good is because, and we, you and I have had conversations before, kind of in a lot of the knee jerk kind of, uh, and now of course there's a hot war, but anti-Russian culture stuff that has crept in through Russiagate all the way through this war, in which I don't think mm-hmm. we're fighting a war against Tolstoy, but like here we are. Um, oh, yeah. <coughs> incredible at a time when the Cold War was still a real thing. Uh, in a really real way, and of course it is, as we see now in so many ways, to have a film come out that treats the Chinese communists so particularly delicately. Like, I can't imagine that even being entertained uh, as an uh, Oscar-nominated thing to do anymore. Like, it's not even simply even just sort of maybe an emperor is a bad thing to have, which is an easy argument to make. It's sort of like the complexities of the cultural revolution even like they really it really isn't afraid to sort of dive into the good and the bad of that as a complex tapestry instead of just this is against the guy we like these are the bad guys it doesn't feel like that at all well i think you have to look at like the relationship between china and the u.s in the last like 20 30 years like at that time we weren't viewing china as this major economic threat necessarily Mm -hmm. it was more just a curiosity um so i think now i mean what would you say is sort of the attitude of hollywood now toward china because i feel like it's almost non-existent like it's more of a blackout policy than it is like a particular like um painting of the chinese as these big villains which is interesting because going back yeah you would think yeah sorry going back to the cold war there are russians portraying the bad guys and like well beyond like anachronistically well beyond like the fall of the of the wall the ussr um even when you get into like the early 2000s and stuff i do think part of that decision was that um directors and writers found it too potentially um racially insensitive or like they were worried about causing controversy by casting like Middle Eastern terrorists as the villain or whatever. So they just sort of continued to use this like Cold War era villain thing where it's like always an Eastern European or like Russian 
bad guy, like diehard style. And when they can't do that, they make them Albanian because no one quite knows what to do with that politically. And they're like, ah, it's the Albanian mafia, maybe. They're doing something. You're like, they want a nuclear weapon? Like, this doesn't make the movie make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But with China, yeah, we don't really see any sort of like Chinese... uh, They should be like the cyber villains in something if we're to believe the things that we hear, right? This would be like, you think that would be like a thing that Hollywood would jump at, right? But isn't that almost... I feel like that would almost be uh, complimentary in a way. If like they... It's too much grudging respect. If we were to portray China as like some sort of technological superpower... Where, whereas, like, the West likes to think of ourselves as that, right? Like, capitalism um, creates innovation, and Elon Musk invents a bunch of bullshit that doesn't work, and we all get a new iPhone every year. Like, that's our thing. So I don't think we want to assign that to China. No. No. I, but, you know, also just in terms of the movie, like, the journey, you know, that the 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 gentleman who was the last emperor of China goes on, kind of with the yes. re-education and stuff also. It's like I also just can't imagine in our current dynamic that... He's, like, successfully re-educated, right? I mean, like, he yes. comes out... Like, he's like, he's yeah, that was like messed good, up. Yeah, he's, like, a good proletarian worker. He's, like, gardening at the end. No, and then he, and he you know, cleans up in the Forbidden City and sort of honors that space because it's now the people's space, and, you know, mm-hmm. and he is a subject in that same way, and I think that right, that... Right. Yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a beautiful kind of transformation. And I think also that's something that we're almost sort of forbidden um, from seeing. And we would never, you could never imagine, again, it may be the exotic thing you're saying so that it's safer and it was older. You could never imagine kind of a Russian uh, agent being afforded this, even right immediately post-World War II, where there was still this kind of detente before the (laughs) freeze before the detente. Yeah, no, I am actually surprised it won a lot of Oscars. I know it's a, it's the it, and it's funny because it's it's horrible the kind of the way I don't want to call it I sound like an old man but like digital meme whatever sort of fanfic culture all has come together for liberals around like po- politicians whether that be like them imagining Kamala Harris and Barack Obama and Joe Biden all hanging out they're now kind of importing this onto like world politics through the lens oh, of this sure. war for in sure. a way that is just becomes just an incredible mess to even start to deconstruct talking about trying to deconstruct these films trying to deconstruct like the memes around what people think Zelensky is doing uh is is becoming just a a real cultural minefield I don't know what do you think yeah I mean I think that the Avengers uh have created major uh brain worms for a lot of people liberals and conservatives and they also kind of like embody I feel like the Avengers really embody even though like there's a lot of like proto-fascist stuff in there like it also embodies this like very centrist non-threatening politics right of like um all of the good guys coming together to fight all of the bad guys and that very generic um idea is sort of being like projected onto any kind of conflict um domestic and international like if you see like it is a good um, hammer for any nail exactly because it's so generic um but the 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 important ingredients in the soup, right, are like there's a good guy and there's a bad guy, and like that is the lens through which most Americans view the world and any conflict. So that includes actually, I think a lot of people on the left, like we've been talking about, like there's been this 
I wouldn't say exactly reluctance, although definitely reluctance on among some people to acknowledge that like Russia is doing imperialism or doing something bad. Um, and I do think that that that's overblown by the centrists that that's like a major problem. On it the does left. all aggression certainly... have to be defined as imperialism is an interesting academic talk. But I mean, I think right. we can all agree that there is an aggression thing. Right, right. No, well, no, what I'm saying is that the reluctance on the left is being uh, exaggerated by the centrists. So I think that prior to the war, there was reluctance to assume that the U.S. intelligence community was being honest with us because, and myself included, like, I don't believe any shit they have to say. I don't feel bad for that. I think that that's like a boy who cried wolf. You've come by it honestly. They themselves created. So next time, try not lying to us for 40 years and see if we listen to you. Um, but even, you know, aside from that, uh, I think that there are leftists who need there to be a good guy. Like for the U S to be a bad guy, there needs mm-hmm. to be a good guy. The same it way will with be assigned liberals to whoever, yeah. for the Russians to be bad. We have to be good. Like there is this binary thinking, um, where it's just not possible to root for no one. It's just not possible to just root for, like, no war but the class war. It's not possible, you know, especially, like, looking back at Syria, we see kind of like a... Um, it's like the predecessor to the Ukraine conflict, and in Syria mm. it was the same thing. It was like everybody had to either decide, are you with these um, groups... Your ISIS many or of, Assad. Many of whom... Exactly. Many of whom are aligned with uh, the Islamic, Islamic State... Do we align with the Islamic State or do we align with Assad? And I don't know why I'm constantly being asked to make that choice as if, like, that's it is not something a healthy that's choice. up to me and that there's a good answer. There can be no good answer. That can happen because life isn't the Avengers. It's funny. You talk about the Avengers sort of being... Um you said immediately this sort of strange combination of both the fascistic, but then also the kind of bland uh, liberalness. And I, I would say, because we already mentioned his name once, and when you say it once, like a vampire, he comes in, it's Adorno. You know, one of his things was that he said that fascism itself was like a, ba- like its basic cause is liberal democracy. Like it is just a constant threat specifically from liberal democracy, like exactly the specificness of what fascism is. They are locked together. There is always think, a danger of fascism inside uh, every democracy specifically to him. Well, sort of. I don't know if I agree. Maybe with the Avengers exactly. embody think, both sides of it, though. I think I agree with the idea that liberalism under capitalism with no class analysis inevitably begets fascism. Like, there's no way for it not to ultimately sort of like crumble into fascism because over time, all of these um, contradictions, uh, well, you know, all the contradictions collapse and, and over time, um, without any sort of, without any sort greater, of, yeah. yeah, without any sort of understanding of the role of class or what oligarchy is or how you cannot have democracy if democracy is more available to people with more money and less available and there's less democracy for people with less money like that is not um democratic like the kind of democracy we have is not democratic in a democratic society rich people don't have more democracy and poor people don't have less democracy that's what we have um so that specific liberal democratic capitalist society yes ultimately uh will fall to fascism yeah, and you know, and so the other kinds of autocracy may come out of different kinds of ways, with this specific kind of marriage of capital and intolerance. 
uh, he right. would say. Uh, we had a great discussion, and I hate to stop it, but like otherwise we wouldn't do the lowbrow. Let's do the lowbrow. And then so, we're going to talk about the, compare them, talk about them together. Uh, I, I, I don't want to do that to the last emperor kind of i think we should just consider this on its own merits that's the entire point of the segment i'm sorry right. but i specifically chose a biopic so that we could do that is that we're true? gonna talk about biopics yeah i want to talk about biopics all right hey how come i can't find the thing i need to find now the walk hard trailer i don't know if i've ever seen it so i can't really vouch for this hey you know who else didn't see it you know who else didn't see this trailer? Is the person who cut this trailer. Everyone tell me if this person watched the film or not. Mr. Cox. Mr. Cox. Give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. From the time he was a boy. Ain't no six-year-old understand the true meaning of the blues. I reckon I might. I done a bad thing. Cut my brother in half. Not bad for your first time. The music of Dewey Cox Take my hand. has had an effect on people. It's the devil's music. From the guy who brought you Talladega Nights and Superbad. I've got to give up this plane. You're never going to make it. And maybe you don't believe in me after all. I do believe in you. I just know you're going to fail. Columbia Pictures presents The Epic Journey. Walking to the top of a mountain ain't easy. It's a long, hard walk. But I will walk hard. Of the man who became a legend. Walk hard. The Beatles won't hang out, so I'm gonna go do that. With meditation, there's no limit to what we can imagine. This Christmas... I'm leaving you. You can take the children, but you leave me, my monkey. When it comes to music... I ain't good enough to follow Elvis. There's two things you need to know. I'm the king. And number two is... Look out, man! You see how close I came to your head? I can chop a man in half. I'm guilty as John. No legend is bigger than Cox. You met my new wife, Cheryl Cox Teague. Thanks, buddy Holly. What do you think, George Harrison? The one, the only, Dewey Cox. And thank you, Eddie Vader. Walk hard. What happened to you, Dewey? I don't know, but I know what happened to you. Patrick Duffy took a beating. Walk hard. My life has been blessed, from my singing to my family to my sausage. It doesn't say cocks unless I say it tastes like cocks. So uh, I do it. think it is a story <laughs> of a man who re-educates himself, you know, becomes a, a straight walking family man after certainly going through a lot of hard times. I don't think we have to summarize the plot too much. Um, I do enjoy music. I do enjoy the 20th century. I do enjoy music I biopics. Think the music is very, I do enjoy uh, satire. The music is yeah. all very good. The performances are all very good. I can see why you pick this. A lot of the jokes are very, very funny. You can say that I'm like leading up to a thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Before I finish the thing, I, why don't I even bring up my two favorite moments? Because I okay, don't think yes, they were in the yeah. trailer. My two favorite moments, because I think the comedy in, in this film was really good when it was small. And when it was small is when it was really just in form of the performance. 
One would be the mother when she says, we're going to light a candle tonight because she's so, it's like she inhabits <laughs> yeah, that line. That's Margot Martindale, lot. the best character actress. She's just, oh, like in um, Bojack or Bojack, whatever. That's yes, her. she's oh. in Bojack. She's yeah. fantastic. It's that I, like, lady, yeah. She knows she's what she's one. doing. She knows how to create behavior. She knows how to create behavior. That's yeah. it. And then the bandmate who, when they swapped wives, was like with the other one and was like, hi. That's a hard scene to kind of like do the hi. And like he really, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, like, it was like ambivalent and it was hard. Yeah, and like hi. he did it. And he really like was like, I'm going to really, like they're probably going to cut this. Like because it's not like, because he didn't realize that they weren't going to cut anything. Uh, and right. that, as I said before, is the fact that this is, there's two things I want to say about this that are sort of negative, though, uh, before okay. I, I turn it over to you to, like, refute them or whatever. You know, okay. and I think it's fine. Continue. I think Continue. it's fine as, as far as it goes. But it falls into this genre of comedy, at, which is, you know, since vaudeville. I mean, who am I to say this is wrong? Very broad. It's just how many, like, laughs a minute, you know, you can get. Except in which is fine as far as it goes, except that versus the modern cinema means we have about 45 minutes of movie that's like just plot and not comedy. You know, it's just like now we're going to have an emotional scene about something. And these are really good performers. So there are whole scenes where like the dialogue is just like it would be from a Lifetime movie, except that they're like letting you know they're faking it. And that works once, that works twice, but it's sort of the last 35 minutes of the movie. But having said that, there is this really, you know, dead period of the movie. The film absolutely, through the brilliance, and this is both the writing and the performance, earns all of its climaxes. Uh, from the machete fight, which could have, mm-hmm. which is a callback to folks who haven't seen the film, the beginning, the tragedy of Dewey Cox's life is that he has sliced his brother in half uh, with Happens. a machete which happens in a machete fight. This is why you shouldn't let your kids go outdoors and certainly not to the countryside. All right? Mao was not right about this if you didn't learn anything else in The Last Emperor. All right? A lot of things, very wise. This is not one of them. Uh, uh, Also, the the comeback, uh, it was too many comebacks. He didn't need to do the Elvis comeback. Uh, yeah. He should have just done the one, and we should have seen more of the rapper. Because in the scene with Shania Twain and um, uh, Lyle Lovett and the other one who's the country something, uh, they were like, and then he comes in. I was like, I want more of this character. I yeah. want to know where he's yeah. from. I want to know what he does. I want to hang out with him. Like, I want to know what's, I want yeah. to know their, their blossoming friendship. And the reason I think they felt the need to do this Elvis one is my main problem with the film. And that's my problem with another film, so maybe that's not fair, but which is Forrest Gump syndrome, which is through sheer nostalgic recognition of something, I expect that to do the work for me instead of actual plots and jokes, right? Like, oh, even in the trailer, like, that's George Harrison, that's Elvis. The guy who was Elvis didn't look like Elvis, but I thought he did a great job. I thought he was a great Elvis. He captured the vibe. No, he he got the je ne sais everything. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was Chris uh, Parnell, I think. I think it could it be. Parnell, I don't know. I, I, I don't yeah. see actors. So I see famous. characters. Everybody it's like created behavior. It was all SNL. It was a lot I of SNL. I saw characters because people did a great job creating characters. I saw characters everywhere. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, this sort of name check kind of 20th century, let's go through all the things we're supposed to do and just enjoy that we get the references. I'm going to say on Buddy Holly five times. Like that joke, again, was funny once, twice, three times, but not 10, 12, 13 times. When they had stuff that they could do that were original ideas, right? Like no, this kind of like, like new 
Okay, have you actually seen Walk the Line, which is what this movie? Yeah, is yeah, yeah. Of? No, the the it's so, picking a lot of it from, but not all I of mean, it. Yeah, like they're they're parody, parodying these the things scene that you like don't with the father like. and stuff. But no, but these yeah, other yeah. things. No, no, but these other things. It's like the Beatles and Buddy. This is all very specific. Like you know, they're going they're going through the thing, and then but, Elvis's comeback special is not Johnny Cash. It's Elvis's comeback special. Right, but I think like uh, like in Walk the Line and in a lot of these biopics, it's like. They constantly do that, and so they're replicating. Yeah, something. You can't no, leave no, that I get out. it. I get yeah. it. It's just you can't like, leave that out. It's like it's it's spoon feeding the audience, which is for instance, in though, in these he didn't need to, to do two serious. of these things, right? He should have had the one comeback special, and instead of being the Elvis in Hawaii ripoff, it should have been the one that he had at the end. But like, and that also, would have made the movie half hour shorter, which could have been okay. But I also think you're getting at why I find biopics. Almost universally, like weirdly the kind of forced paced, nostalgia, like paced. manufactured consent. No, no, no. I'm saying weirdly paced and over long by at least mm. 30 minutes is a, it's like a hallmark in of the all the bones of biopics. And here's why I think it is. Um, it's because it's exactly because of the thing I was talking about in the prior conversation, which is that we are so used to movie stories where there is a good guy a bad guy there's a conflict and then at the end the good guy triumphs or you know it's a dark movie the bad guy triumphs and we all learn not you know to be cynical about the world or whatever um but a biopic which is supposed to go from birth to death about a human life there is never that sort of neat structure to it so they the filmmaker tries to impose that structure onto a story that ultimately ends in someone's death which is not like a super uplifting ending. Totally. Um, Which is silly because that's not the narrative, right? In the work right. that we do at committee, right? Defining a politician's narrative or whatever, right? It's like pulling something out that's not just a biography because biography is not destiny and it's not and always even interesting. People's lives are too long for them to have one major conflict or two major conflicts right. and then it shows them overcoming that and then their lives are over and i mean you can see this in the last emperor as well it's kind of fucking long and there are several comebacks of the emperor and i think this is just the reality of how people's lives uh i mean there's multiple world wars you know what i mean it's gonna be an extra chapter exactly like it's gonna be an extra chapter we got we're going from what like 60s 70s 80s 90s i forget when the movie ends exactly maybe like early 2000s up to present day so they're trying I'm to incorporate all of these um, different social and political events into the background of this life story, and that's like very typically done in these biopics. So I think I think it's hard to draw the line in this movie between you know the things you're complaining about are those. It's you know, endemic those... to this genre of satire, right. and I feel like people who are the greats at it manage to put the messaging in everything that they do. Yeah. You know, even like you hear, I think folks, I think like, I think, I think it was Larry David was talking about like, if you can't think of a funny reason for the scene to exist, then like the scene probably shouldn't exist. And I feel yeah. like that could have been applied more rigorously here. To be honest, I saw that Judd Apatow and someone else wrote it. And I feel like he had like one really good day writing this and then passed it off. Someone was like, can you just write the bullshit like that finishes the movie? Cause it's like pretty obvious what's supposed to happen. And like. I'm busy and I'm Judd Apatow, and that's kind of how it feels. I don't think he was that busy in 2009. Yeah, but, you know, these people don't ever finish their movie. It wasn't like, you know, they all got together. Is that true? Because I don't know. I I have no idea. It's just like... Nobody ever finishes their movie? It's just all of the things were so (laughs) front... All of the jokes were so front-loaded, especially from the the trailer, right? I, I agree that, like, the first half of the movie is much stronger. 
Uh, John C. Riley is fantastic. I didn't mention so him good. yet. He's fantastic. So good. He's fantastic. And has he actually like what other movie? He's so often like a character actor. He's like always a, the extra like guy. A, he's always exactly. the extra guy. He's it was nice to say. I hope this did kick. well for him. He was, I was good in say Chicago. That. But like, has there been another film where he's just straight up like the? Has he been used as like a dramatic actor yet? Because he does have one of those faces. You can see him getting um, like I how they love feel, to give comedians oh, awards yeah, when no, they play he 100% things. Hundred percent has been in. Well, I was saying he was in Chicago. That was. I mean, that was kind of a funny movie and kind of a funny role but i wouldn't yeah, say that was a yeah. comedy you know like he had it's no. his real act he's acting acting shops like re- yeah. acting 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 um, acting the theater he's, he's great in it he's really great in it i mean his role's kind of sad he's like the husband of roxy have you seen chicago yeah 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 yeah, yeah. mr uh, they actually do thing. a great um it's uh based on these uh stories that are actually this radio gangster stories mm-hmm. uh that are that are super good with this one guy be, who's got this oh, go crazy ahead. voice. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I could be wrong, but I feel like wasn't John C. Riley first a dramatic actor who then started doing comedy stuff? Am I making I that know. up? I don't know. I don't we'll know. look that up. We'll look that okay, up. We'll and, look do that up. Correct, and do a correction next time. I feel when... like he might be like a John Hamm type, you know, where like they, they finally, he more the opposite. Don't lump case, him in they, with John Hamm. They, they finally let him do some comedy and they were like, oh, don't go back. This is very. This is good. This is working. Like this. This, is yeah, working. this is working. Yeah. Um, he was great. Kristen Wiig, great. Like uh, almost underutilized, but I feel like actually the perfect amount because more of it. She's incredibly like broad character, and like more of it probably would have been too much. But um, I really like that they made fun of the thing they always do in biopics, which is they, as soon as possible, they didn't do this in The Last Emperor, actually, I don't think. They did a very good job with all the aging up and all of that stuff, but in a lot of these, they have the adult actor who's, like, 45 years old. As soon as they turn, like, 12, they're playing the character. So um, when he is 14 playing at the high school and Kristen Wiig is supposed to be 12 and they just keep having to say their ages over and over again. Like, again, I feel I'm like... I'm 12-year-old girlfriend. In the in the 90-minute version of this movie, they would have done that joke twice instead of five times. Uh, so uh, do you have anything picked out for next time that we should tell folks so they can, they can prepare? Or uh, are oh. we going to surprise everyone? I mean, I don't. Should we maybe pivot more to like the horror... Side you pivot to horror. And you yeah, let's both pivot to horror. I will pick a, what I consider to be to a high. Uh, we'll both pick what we consider to uh, a highbrow one that I think is interesting, and you pick a lowbrow horror you think is interesting. Okay, mine will probably have like giant. You have a couple weeks. We do like this in like three or four week cycles, so it's like not for a month. Cool. <laughs> I'm th- I'm just thinking of all the of all the bad horror movies right now. Okay, well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and we will get to you next time with some highbrow, and then you say lowbrow. Lowbrow. Nice. Thanks so much again for joining us tonight on the committee program. You can always support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash committee program. You can follow us on all of our social media accounts, including on Twitter, at Committee Pro, YouTube, The Committee Program, Instagram, The Committee Program, Facebook, The Committee Program. And you can actually visit The Committee Program company store now at T Public, The Committee Program Shop. We have a couple of things. We will try to get some more. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javak Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Lovett, and Committee's Deputy Director, Julia Doubleday. Try and look alive out there, folks. It's later than you think. 
It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening.